You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him, from among the people of Israel, to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it, shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. You shall take two onyx stones, and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel." You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before Yahweh on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen you shall make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set it in four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row, and the second row an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond, and the third row a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst, and the fourth row a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold, and you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold, and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece, and you shall put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree, and so attach it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold, and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece, on its inside edge next to the ephod, and you shall make two rings of gold, and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod, at its seam above 
the skillfully woven band of the ephod, and you shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod, so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before Yahweh. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before Yahweh. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before Yahweh regularly. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening, like the opening in a garment, so that it may not tear. On its hem, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before Yahweh and when he comes out so that he does not die. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to Yahweh, and you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before Yahweh. You shall weave the coat in checker work of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty, and you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests." You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. Now, this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments, and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod, and the ephod and the breastpiece, and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head, and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil, and pour it on his head, and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them, and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull, 
Then you shall kill the bull before Yahweh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Then you shall take one of the rams and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram and you shall kill the ram and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to Yahweh. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to Yahweh. You shall take the other ram and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. You shall also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the river and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination, and one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before Yahweh. You shall put all these on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons and wave them for a wave offering before Yahweh. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before Yahweh. It is a food offering to Yahweh. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before Yahweh, and it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination from what was Aaron's and his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel, from their peace offerings, their contribution to Yahweh. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them seven days. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration, but an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination or of the bread remain until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you, through seven days shall you ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also, you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, 
and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour, mingled with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer it with a grain offering, and its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to Yahweh. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before Yahweh, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am Yahweh their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh their God. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 581 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, March 19th, 2023, and that was Exodus 28 and 29. And I realize that in reading such extended passages at the beginning of a podcast episode, some people are just not going to have time to get through those parts of this podcast and then get into all of the commentary. And it was recently recommended to me, suggested to me, that maybe to offset that fact for people who have shorter drives or they only have 10 or 15 minutes, maybe I should have some smaller clips as well have the long-form podcast, but then also break out some five-minute clips here and there and post those by themselves. Maybe that would require too much editing, this person pointed out and admitted. But what do you do for people who don't have much time? And right now, at this juncture, the simple answer is nothing. I don't do anything for those people. And those people will have to go find content <laughs> that is uh, short form and more 30-second soundbite and five-minute clips and 10-minute clips. I don't do anything for those folks. Maybe if I had this as my full-time job, in fact, you can guarantee if this were my full-time job, I would be breaking out five and 10-minute clips here and there and just posting those by themselves as separate little features and specials. But such as it is, such as it is, I actually only have time for the long-form podcast, and I'm better at that. I'm better at that to just get all the thoughts out there. And sometimes it doesn't work to record everything all in one go. Like this episode, for instance. Yesterday morning is when I recorded the reading of Exodus here that I played at the top of this episode. And 
there just wasn't time with other opportunities, I guess you might say, to engage with my family or with friends or just to take it easy or to do some programming work from home. There just wasn't time to record the rest of the podcast episode that you're listening to right now. And so I didn't. I didn't. I just saved what I had and closed the program for the time being. And sometimes that's just what it is because I have a big family and there's a lot to get to. And this is not my day job, more to the point. This is not my day job. If people want to come alongside and help facilitate, (laughs) that's their business. I'm not going to hold my breath. And there've been too many times down through the years, down through the last, oh, I don't know, eight years or so at this point, coming up on eight years, too many times where I have partnered with other people to produce something, to work on something, and it fizzles out because their commitment is not there. Maybe they suggest, maybe they encourage, maybe they are brainstorming with me, but when it comes to actually doing the work, they don't have that follow through and they aren't prepared to make a commitment themselves. And so what I say is, okay, thank you. You know, I'll make a mental note of that recommendation, of that suggestion, and maybe someday I will have time for that. But at this juncture, I don't. And you might say, well, but you have time for the long-form podcast. How is that possible that you would have time for this long-form podcast where these hour to hour and a half episodes, hour and 21 minutes and five seconds so far is the average for this season, which started January 1st, by the way. But how is it possible that you're recording four or five episodes that long per week, but you don't have time to do some of this other stuff? And I say, like I said to my friend who was giving me some advice earlier this week, I have been refining what I'm doing right now for five years, roughly. And I've gotten busier in the last five years. <laughs> I've gotten busier. My schedule has changed. You know, it used to be I would have a week on, week off type schedule with my day job. And that week off, absolutely, you can do a lot of experimenting for sure. But when you work Monday through Friday and occasionally some of your work spills over onto a Saturday and a Sunday, you just don't. You just don't. And this is not a complaint. It's just a recognition. It's just an admission of the facts of the situation that I am a finite creature and I can't do everything, but I do have a commitment to doing this podcast. I believe that I have seen fruit in doing this podcast and fruit doesn't have to take the form of everybody knowing my name. It doesn't have to involve or require millions of subscribers and listeners. You, if you are listening to this right now and you have been listening, and I know plenty of people who have been listening for years, then whatever benefit it delivers to you in terms of helping you to think about what's going on, what you have to attend to in your own life, what's in the news cycle, what the decisions are to make politically, socially, ecclesiologically, if that's even a word. If this is helping you, then that is enough for me because I believe God has called me to it. And so he can know 
<laughs> what is best. And I'll be patient. I don't think that the current circumstance that I'm in is how it's going to always be. And that might mean that there's a future point. I'm sure it does mean that at some future point, I won't be podcasting. And maybe I'll be doing something else instead at that juncture. Or maybe I'll just be resting. Maybe I'll retire from podcasting someday because it's time to pass the torch to others. And in the meantime, what I want is to have given those others who would come after me a good place to start. And hopefully I will have built them up before they are the ones in this kind of a position. And it might not be podcasting that they're doing. It might be something totally different. But the idea is the same, that we would be taking every thought captive. Whoever comes next to be doing that work of trying to take every thought captive, I want to put them in good stead. And quite frankly, in reading Neil Postman, his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, makes a really strong case that part of what's wrong with our public discourse and our political process these days is that everything is so compressed in terms of talking about things, debating things, discussing things, reasoning through things, evaluating, assessing. We are so impatient and we think that we don't have this or that time to read, to listen, to long-form arguments or expressions of this or that position on a certain issue. I would argue actually that the consequences of thinking that way are that we are very vulnerable to highly manipulated, highly selective, very dishonest sound bites. 30 seconds here and there to give an impression, but not make a direct claim that you would be able to challenge or either prove or disprove. And so you just go with it if the perception is all wrapped up in the idea that this is what the successful people believe. This is what the smart people believe. You should be smart. You should be successful, right? So you should believe this thing and you should do this thing and you shouldn't do this other thing. And it's not so good because it's not persuasive. We are not being persuaded. We are being manipulated. And insofar as we just accept that, we are complicit in <laughs> the dumbing down of our fellows and ourselves. And we're highly vulnerable to charlatans, to people that do not have our best interests in heart. They want to use us. They want to exploit us. They want to take things from us that God has entrusted to us. And yes, I realize God is sovereign. And if he allows those people to do those things, he can still work it to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, but then not for no reason. On the other hand, does Jesus tell us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves? To be wise as a serpent does not mean that you are a serpent. It means that you are able to see trouble coming and hide yourself when you need to. You know what this or that person is up to, and you know how to protect yourself, how to guard your heart, for instance, for from it flow the wellsprings of life. Your heart affects everything that you do, so guard it. But if you're not wise as serpents, then you can't. You can't do that. You wear your heart on your sleeve and then somebody uh, <laughs> breaks it. <laughs> so 
All of that is to say, I want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem here. And just like I am trying to be long form with each podcast episode here, I also hope and I pray, if it's the Lord's good pleasure, to be long form in keeping at this. And we'll see what fruits are born over time. If I give up, if you give up, if we grow weary in doing what is good, then we will not reap a harvest in due season. We just won't. That's a farming analogy. If you're not associated with a farming background, then it might be somewhat lost on you, but think gardening too. And if you plant a garden, you don't expect, not if you're reasonable, not if you have any experience with it, you don't expect to be harvesting your peppers and your tomatoes and your cucumbers and your carrots and your potatoes the day after you plant them, right? So also, when it comes to planting trees, let's say, fruit trees, you don't expect that they're going to be giving you avocados and pears and all the rest, all the other various kinds of fruits that you can grow on trees. You don't expect that they're going to be yielding fruit right away, right meow. And again, this is one of the ways in which everything being communicated in 30-second sound bites sets us up for disappointment and for being taken advantage of. And even if not those things, setting us up for growing weary in doing what is good is not something we should want. So all that said, I'm going to keep on doing the long-form podcast. And I'm also going to keep one-third of my podcasts uh, subscriber only. You know, maybe I'll just plan the most controversial things that I would say for my subscription-only podcast episodes. And the people who are only tuning in for 10 minutes and they're going to take things out of context for good or for ill, uh, maybe they have to really listen to me unpack the more controversial things that I'm going to say in a long-form subscriber-only podcast. So far, I would not say that uh, the number of subscriptions has been very great. But again, if it's a good thing to do, then I'm going to figure out better ways to do it instead of just giving up. You know, if my approach is needing refined and needing tweaked, okay, well, that's been the way it's been since the very beginning. But Part of this larger conversation that I had with this friend earlier in the week about some other ideas for my podcast involved the question, not in relation to my podcast, in relation to some other venture we were talking about. It involved the question of, well, who would want to show up for that? Or what would the fruit of that be? And there's a part of me, in hindsight, after we got together, after we met, that wonders if those were rhetorical questions as if to say, nobody is going to want to show up for that. And also there won't be any fruit. You know, he didn't want to break my heart and uh, pour cold water on me. But on the other hand, he doesn't think that the thing conceived of uh, is going to work. And he might be right, but then I go back to 
something I say in situations like this from time to time, not with that attitude, right? Not with that attitude. If our mindset is that something is not going to work, well, then it's not going to work, particularly if you grow weary and doing what is good, particularly if people don't buy in, if they don't participate. It's occurred to me from time to time as I'm podcasting that the due season for this venture, this effort, due season for reaping a reward, reaping a harvest, might not be measured in weeks or months. You think an hour and a half is a long time. Weeks and months and years might be too short because, again, we're looking at Exodus and what is it that God does with the children of Israel who are wandering in the desert when they grumble and they grumble and they grumble and they even get worked up enough when the spies come back from scouting out the promised land, they get worked up enough at the testimony of the two witnesses who said, no, it's an exceedingly good land that they have a notion to kill uh, those two spies who trusted that God could give them this land. They were ready to kill them. And you think, man, what an odd reaction. <laughs> what, a, what a strange reaction. That's so weird. <laughs> They're telling you this is a really good land. And you want to kill them? And what it really gets to is that it was scary. They were afraid and they were angry that these two were having the temerity to contradict what they really wanted and what they'd been wanting for some time, which was to go back to the familiar environs and, yes, bondage, slavery of Egypt. They wanted what they wanted, even though what they wanted was not sensible. And here are Joshua and Caleb getting in the way, telling them some other thing. And because Joshua and Caleb are potentially not just getting in the way, but also putting them to shame and highlighting how faithless how faithless uh, they're being. Those who want to pick up stones to stone them and elect new leadership to go back to Egypt feel personally threatened and embarrassed and humiliated. And they don't like that feeling. So they just want to destroy what is causing them to feel the way that they're feeling as they see it. They don't see what's causing them to feel the way they're feeling as being internal, an internal orientation of their own heart and mind and soul. They see what is causing them to feel this way as external because they're a good person or they're as good as people get. You know, if people aren't good, well, then what's the difference, right? Only then come Joshua and Caleb who believe that God can give this land into the hands of his people as he has promised. He's kept every other promise he's made, guys. This is an exceedingly good land. Milk and honey, delicious. This land is flowing with milk and honey. And milk and honey are just stand-ins, by the way. We're not going to be hungry in this land. In fact, we won't just have food, not bread and water. We're going to have milk and honey. It's going to be delicious. We're going to have feasts. We're going to live well. We're going to be very comfortable in this land. But what would that require? That would require 
obeying God. That would require trusting God, going into a dangerous situation as they see it. Their big doubt, their big question is not whether Joshua and Caleb are telling the truth about whether this is a good land, not whether the 10 are correct when they say that we're like grasshoppers in their eyes. There are giants in the land. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. Their their big question is not whether these spies who've been they've been sent in, they've come back, given a report, not whether they are telling the truth about what it is that they are finding. Their big question is whether God is good, whether God is faithful. Their anger, just like with Cain and Abel, their anger is not first and foremost with their brother. It's first and foremost with the God who has accepted this and rejected that because they want that and they don't want to repent and they don't want to admit that they're wrong, period. They don't want to admit that they're wrong. And so what does God do? He has that whole generation wander in the desert for 40 years until they're all dead, except for Joshua and Caleb who were of that generation, but they believed God. And you think to yourself, Joshua and Caleb didn't persuade anybody. Maybe they should have just kept it to themselves. I mean, Joshua, Caleb, hey, you know, I don't want to pour cold water on what you're planning to do and giving a good report from the promised land. But um, is anybody going to show up for that? Is there going to be any fruit in delivering a good report? And the simple answer is yes, but not soon. Because at minimum in that generation, Joshua and Caleb enjoy the fruit of being able to see the promised land themselves, being able to inherit that. There is fruit for Joshua and Caleb, whether there is fruit for anybody else. That is a decision each can make for themselves. Is anybody going to show up for that? Yeah, Joshua and Caleb are. They're going to show up. Not only are they going to show up, but in 40 years, the descendants of this generation that has been brought out of Egypt will be showing up. So play the long game. That's the point. That's the point I'm trying to make. I put myself in the mindset of Joshua and Caleb when they address the assembly of Israel. I'm going to show up. I'm going to see fruit from this. If you all don't, well, then that's your business. <laughs> that's your choice. That's your affair. If it takes 40 years, well, then it takes 40 years. How would it be if we applied this same kind of rationale to Noah? Noah is told to build an ark, for instance. Peter, in the New Testament, describes Noah as a herald of righteousness. You might say, preacher, no converts except his wife, his sons, his sons' wives, everyone else perished. It wasn't until the laughing stopped as the rains came and the waters came up that people realized he had been right. He was right. They mocked him for a century, and then it turned out he was right. How would it be if he had said, well, nobody's going to believe me. Nobody's going to come to that. I mean, again, 
Moses, when God speaks to Moses in the burning bush, he says that he's not so good with the talking thing. And God's response was, who made man's tongue? What is that to me? (laughs) In fact, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. I'm not sending you to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, because you're the most persuasive. Not because he's going to be persuaded by you. You do what I told you to do, and you leave the persuading to me, if I may paraphrase what the gist of God's mission to Moses and Aaron is. So also, I think that needs to be my mindset. I think that needs to be others' mindset. I can't very well be telling other people to have that as their mindset if I'm not embracing it practically myself. And so I am trying imperfectly, sure, but committed nevertheless. Now, moving on, before we run out of time, we've got some current events items to talk about, to talk through, to bring up, to address. Here's a big one. A really big one. Trump says illegal leaks indicate he'll be arrested on Tuesday of next week. Calls for protests. Ryan Saavedra over at the Daily Wire published a piece just yesterday. Former President Donald Trump said in a social media post early Saturday morning that illegal leaks from the Manhattan District Attorney's Office indicate that he will be arrested next week. The remarks from Trump come after a report from NBC News said federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies were analyzing security assessments and making plans to prepare for the possibility that Trump could be indicted next week by a Manhattan grand jury in connection with a $130,000 hush money payment he allegedly made to porn actress Stormy Daniels during the 2016 presidential campaign. Quote, this is a quote from Trump's post to social media. Illegal leaks from a corrupt and highly political Manhattan district attorney's office, which has allowed new records to be set in violent crime and whose leader is funded by George Soros, indicate that with no crime being able to be proven and based on an old and fully debunked by numerous other prosecutors fairy tale, the far and away leading Republican candidate and former president of the United States of America will be arrested on Tuesday of next week. Protest. Take our nation back. What a time to be alive. Hmm? What a time to be alive. I'm not as interested in the question of whether he had this alleged affair with Stormy Daniels. I wouldn't be surprised if he did. And I hope that he didn't. I'll put it that way. I wouldn't be surprised if he did. And I hope that he didn't. I do object to her being called a porn actress. What would be more correct would be, prostitute. She's a prostitute. And the crime supposedly here is that $130,000 to her, for her to be quiet and not talk about this, which she then did anyways, that $130,000 could potentially be an inappropriate uh, campaign contribution that was not quite above board. And so then the insinuation is that this should have been reported according to campaign finance laws. It wasn't that this was 
to directly benefit his presidential run, and he didn't disclose it, and therefore a crime has been committed. And let me just point out the hypocrisy, the utter hypocrisy and willfulness of this line of attack. And when I say that, what I really mean is look at what we're seeing come out week after week for the last, what, three years regarding the Biden family, regarding other politicians, to be sure, on the left, other Democrats, to be sure, but the actual current president of the United States. Where is the indictment for Biden? Where is that? Don't hold your breath. For the same reasons, or very similar reasons, when Israel decides that they are going to pick up stones and stone Joshua and Caleb, and they actually welcome the news from the other 10 spies who say, we are as grasshoppers in their eyes. I think for very similar reasons, we're not going to see an indictment from the same folks who allegedly, we'll see, allegedly are planning to arrest Trump on Tuesday. Why is that? Because they want a certain outcome and they don't want a different outcome. This is corrupt. This is dirty. And this is what a lot of Christians mean when they say they don't want to get involved in politics because politics is just slimy and dishonest inherently, this kind of stuff. And actually, truth be told, that's part of the reason why Christians should be getting involved in politics. Uh, Also, at the same time, that's part of the reason why this is being done to Trump because it's supposed to have a chilling effect on Republicans more broadly, generally. Republicans who would actually depart from the current status quo and clean it up, call it out, disagree substantively, significantly. Their idea of national security in the deep state is, I'm quite convinced, that They're very long game. They're playing a long game. This is part of the reason why we have to play a long game. That their long game would come to an end without them having accomplished their objectives. They have a certain doctrine. They have a certain view of the world. They have a certain idea of how to bring about and maintain something approximating world peace. They are internationalists as opposed to nationalists. That's part of why they hate Trump. They are globalists. You'll hear that term. Potato, potato. Same thing. Trump was upsetting the apple cart with regards to globalism with the motto, America first. Make America great again. That got to the very core of what the deep state, the establishment types of both parties have been doing for decades, which is not putting America first which is actually eroding American greatness at home and abroad and making quite a handsome sum in the process as a thank you from all over the world, which is to say taking bribes, perverting justice. It's no new thing under the sun. Bribes are nothing new. 
So why would we assume that they can't happen here? And also too, can I just point out, if we would say that there might be some credibility to the allegations against Trump, and so we should allow all the evidence to be brought forward, who can deny that equal weights and measures necessitate, require the exact same for the establishment type Republicans and Democrats for the current president. And this has never happened to my knowledge, and I read a fair amount of history. It's never happened that a former president of the United States of America has been arrested. So this will be potentially a first. And yes, it does look very banana republic. Not a good look. Not a good look. If law enforcement at all levels across the country is preparing for the possibility of unrest. Uh, yeah, yeah, you you probably should brace yourself for unrest if you're planning on arresting Trump. You, you probably will get unrest. And can I tell you something, friends, family, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. They might want the unrest, actually. They might be wanting it. Because the J6 narrative has unraveled that one. They milked it for all they could, and it's dry now. And so they need a new wineskin, as it were. And this might just be it. We'll see. The Manhattan DA in question has put out a statement. Quote, please know that your safety is our top priority. We have full confidence in our outstanding security staff and investigators along with our great OCA and NYPD colleagues, and will continue to coordinate with all of them. We do not tolerate attempts to intimidate our office or threaten the rule of law in New York. Our law enforcement partners will ensure that any specific or credible threats against the office will be fully investigated and that the proper safeguards are in so all 1,600 of us have a secure work environment. So let me translate. One, I don't see where they're denying the suggestion, allegation, claim that Trump is going to be arrested on Tuesday. I don't see that. Now, maybe they're just ignoring it because it's like, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. But then the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago also would have seemed extraordinarily far-fetched if we had heard about it in advance of when it happened, when it took place. So there's that. This is not unprecedented in human history. Actually, what's more surprising is that in the United States of America, we haven't had something like this current climate sooner. And we did have a civil war, and maybe we get another. Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but read through the history of the kings and queens of the British Isles. There's lots of weird, duplicitous, underhanded, bloody, dishonest scheming and maneuvering and the king is dead, long live the king type stuff you can find. It is not all one thing. And actually, I would say a history of the kings and queens of England, Scotland in particular, should be instructive. We need to dust off those history books to appreciate, again, why our form of government was set up the way that it was and what 
might be happening, actually, because people are people. When people start thinking a certain way and relating a certain way, you can somewhat predict, generally, their trajectory. And the trajectory, I don't just mean of those individuals, those individuals in government, but the trajectory of a people, of a nation, of a culture, that it is headed for civil war. I mean, if there's a recipe for de-escalation, this ain't it. This ain't it. I don't know what's going to happen, but here's what I would say. I would say that if Trump surrenders to authorities, as he's promised to do, if they try to bring him in, try to arrest him on Tuesday, he will surrender himself. I think he's going to lean into the optics. He's already leaning into the optics. And if they do arrest him, those optics might just lead to either A, a landslide re-election victory in 2024 that does you know, provided there's no civil war, <laughs> uh, does bring a lot of centrists over to the Trump side because they'll recognize, whoa, this is highly irregular, so irregular that this has never happened in our nation's history. And what? No. Yeah, I think I'm going to vote for Trump because these leftists are crazy. Uh, Elon Musk is predicting that. He tweeted out that if this happens, Trump will win in a lin- he'll win in a landslide in 2024, with a much broader mandate. By the way, the left is playing a dangerous, dangerous game, but they have to know that. And also, I don't believe that they care. So they might actually hope. They might hope. Uh, watch two drunk guys get increasingly agitated with each other. What do they not do as the other is getting more inflammatory? Typically, they don't become calmer. They become increasingly agitated, irate, provocative. Expletives are usually uh, part of the conversation. Insults. And those build and build and build until one or the other throws a punch or shoves. And then it builds and builds and builds. This is escalation. And the left, if they are telling the truth about uh, what they think is the first strike here, Trump started it. Trump supporters started it. And so we all alike have what's coming to us. And they hope, they hope that Somebody on the conservative side, the Republican side, does something foolish. But here's the thing. At a certain point, if the left is, oh, I don't know, attacking people violently, if they're the ones attacking violently and conservatives, Republicans, Trump voters defend themselves, well, then this could get really ugly. And then what, right? Then what? I'm not going to speculate further. We'll see what Tuesday brings. First things first, we'll see what Tuesday brings. But if we did have another civil war, I would wager that the 18 or so states that are lining up with Ron DeSantis 
Florida's governor, to put a stop to the Biden administration's ESG's uh, investment scheme, those 18 states that form a coalition are going to be on the winning side. At least I hope. I hope they're going to be on the winning side. And I think you'll have some undecideds. You'll have purple states that don't know what they want to be when they grow up, just like in the first civil war. They won't know what they want to be when they grow up. And they'll take convincing or they'll have to watch and see how things play out. Maybe whichever side upsets them more first will be the side (laughs) that they decide, it's not those guys, right? We'll join the other team. What's interesting to me is reporting, which I've seen increasingly in recent years, which I know centrists don't want to hear. They don't like to think about this. They want to dismiss it out of hand, but you can't have as much of this kind of reporting as we are seeing increasingly without saying, hmm, hmm, interesting. Maybe, at least, right? Don't dismiss it out of hand, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. Paul Saka over at The Blaze published this piece yesterday titled, One in Five Americans Support a National Divorce Majority Not Optimistic About the Country's Democracy. (laughs) Not optimistic. Approximately 20% of U.S. citizens, which would represent roughly 66 million people, support the idea of a national divorce. I'm surprised that's not more. Maybe it is. A Two America survey by Ipsos found that one in five Americans support breaking up the United States into two countries based on political beliefs. Republicans were more in favor of a national divorce, with 25% of GOP voters wanting to separate fully one quarter, ladies and gentlemen, one quarter, according to the poll of 1,018 American adults. Now, that's, I think, not a big enough sample size, personally. More. (laughs) Enhance. 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 Uh, Let's pull more people. Meanwhile, 20% of independents and 16% of Democrats embrace the national divorce idea. If Trump wins in 2024, it'll be far more than 16% of Democrats. Mark my words. If Ron DeSantis wins in 2024, it'll be far more than 16%. Fewer Democrats embrace the idea now that they're in charge, right? Men, individuals making 50000 or less per year and those living in the South and West are more likely to support a national divorce. Only 16% of Americans support their state seceding from the U.S. to form or join a new country. That's, that's interesting. That's very curious. That's very curious. <laughs> now, get this. 47% of poll takers said they would move out of their state if there was an effort to secede. There were 64% of Americans who said there is more that divides us than unites us. 61% blamed political and social elites for the nation's polarization. Only 15% faulted how ordinary Americans think and behave. And that that number, that last number, should be so much higher. Because how do you think the political and social elites have been able to polarize the nation if it's not by exploiting the way ordinary Americans think and behave? How do you separate those things? You can't. You can't. Not if you want to do anything about it. 57% of respondents were not confident at all that Americans would reconcile our differences 
in the next five years at all. The poll revealed that 54% of Americans were not optimistic about the state of our country's democracy. Some other reporting over at The Blaze. Chris Enlow, March 13th. Michelle Yeoh wins top Academy Award, then uses speech to dunk on CNN's Don Lemon. Don't let anybody tell you you're ever past your prime. And she is older. She is older. Still a beautiful woman, Michelle Yeoh. If you're not familiar, Don Lemon made some comments about Nikki Haley running for president, that she is past her prime because she's 51, which is rich given how old Biden is and how old Trump is. 51 is quite a bit younger, quite a bit. The reason I bring this up is not because I'm all that interested in how old Michelle Yeoh is or Biden or Trump, but more so because the age of our country, the age of this union, uh, the age of the current status quo, which was more or less cemented during World Wars I and II, before that, the Civil War, the amount of time that has passed, we are due for either World War III or Civil War II. Howe and Strauss would affirm that. And if we increasingly are looking around at our fellow Americans and seeing them nodding their heads like, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it's about that time. Then what draws us back from the precipice? You know, it might be this idea of a debate society. I've been floating here in recent months, considering with an exploratory committee of guys from church. Uh, Maybe it's just not going to be a winning idea until we actually go over that precipice as a country. And then we'll say, oh, man, why can't we just talk about things, right? Why can't, man, everybody's shooting each other, blowing each other up and fighting and killing and hating each other. Man, why can't we just sit down and talk about this? And if and when that happens, I'm going to say, remember remember that idea (laughs) that we were discussing of training people? on how to debate. Remember that idea? Don't mind me, but (laughs) that was how you would have prevented the the whole killing and the shooting and stabbing and blowing each other up thing if we'd taught people how to have reasoned discourse and to embrace that again. But then that's no guarantee either. I mean, here's the fact. The, the, The simple fact, when you do read... Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. He talks about the Lincoln-Douglas debates, how long form they were. Opposite, just opposite of the circus, which our televised political debates have become in this day. Direct opposite. But what came next after those long-form debates was an attempt at a national divorce. North versus South, several years of bloody, destructive war. And so to have a debate society, that's no guarantee either. It's no guarantee that we're going to be able to avoid at this point what seems to be 
building to a crescendo. And yet, I think, again, in decades is better than in weeks and months. You have to think in weeks and months to some extent to get to decades, but do think with me in decades for just a moment. We're going to need a new class of, new generation of people who are able to reason and build consensus and articulate their positions and have sound biblical principles if this country is to endure in any way, shape, or form, if we are to prosper in any way, shape, or form. And where will those young men get their training? Who will train them if we don't? Somebody will train them, and they will train them along certain lines. And if they get their training from the folks who have gotten us into this mess, then we will never get out of this mess, and it will just be the end. But I can't believe that. I can't believe that that is the long-term outcome. I think that the same folks who have gotten us into this mess, if they knew how to get us out, they wouldn't, because then it would be all the clearer how culpable they are themselves personally, individually, institutionally, for getting us here. Confession is good for the soul, but not always for your political futures. On the other hand, one of the findings I enjoyed most in this book, The Peacemaker by William Inbeden, about Ronald Reagan's administration, is that when the whole Iran-Contra business came to light, and it was a huge scandal, he came out and he owned it. I mean, initially, he said, no, that's not what's going on, and nothing like negotiating with terrorists is going on behind the scenes. And then, as more and more came out, he had to revise his statement publicly, and he did publicly. He said, I've said before, I, I don't believe that this or that is what happened, what's been claimed, what's been alleged. And in my heart, I still believe that what is being claimed is not what happened. And yet the evidence tells a different story. And essentially, you could take that sign on the desk for Truman, Harry S. Truman's uh, administration. When Truman was president, he had a sign on his desk that said, the buck stops here, which is to say, I'm the guy, right? If this goes well, well, then I get some credit. If it goes poorly, well, then it's my fault. And as such, I'm going to be asking you some questions because I take this seriously. I'm going to be giving you some directions because I'm taking ownership of the outcomes here. That's what it means for me to be in the position that I'm in. Reagan did that, and it actually won a lot of people over because it was so unusual, because so few people do that. But see, you have to have a moral compass, and Reagan did. I don't agree with especially his signing of the no-fault divorce legislation in California when he was governor there. That was a bad thing. It was a terrible thing. He wasn't right on everything, but he was very committedly a Christian from everything I can see and read, from everything I have come across. He was a very committed Christian. And so first and foremost, 
his admitting to what he believed to be the truth, whether it reflected well on him in everybody's minds or not, was necessary because he wants to have a good conscience before his maker, before he wants to secure his political futures. America might be due. Don't let anybody ever tell you you're past your prime. Yeah, you know, I I wish actually, I wish that some people would admit it. I, I'm not saying Michelle Yeoh is past her prime. Great actress, great actress, uh, beautiful woman, but some people are past their prime. Biden, for instance, is past his prime. He is definitely, most definitely. Trump might be. He might just be. But then again, we'll see, right? We'll see. The earliest chapters of Genesis show those first generations after Adam, between Adam and Noah especially, living for centuries. Do you think anybody was telling them at the age of 75, yeah, you know, maybe you should retire and do what for the next 700 years, (laughs) right? (laughs) So it's relative, right? Biden, if he were 35 and in the mental and physical shape that he's in right now, he should step down. So it's less about age, but it's more about, hey, what shape are you in? And are you able to do the job? If you're not, well, then you should step aside. And if you don't, then I am saying you're being selfish. You're being selfish right now. And if the rest of us refuse to consider that, that you're not able to do the job, then we're also being selfish and short-sighted. The Denver Post. Here's another story. John Wenzel over at the Denver Post published this one March 13th, updated March 14th. Sober seating bill for Colorado sports concert venues would set national precedent. Co-sponsors State Senator Kevin Priola and Rep. Chris DeGruy Kennedy say the market is deeply underserved. And all this really is, is that not everybody wants to sit next to people who are drinking during a sporting event or a concert. Not everybody wants to sit next to people who are perhaps going to drink to excess and be obnoxious, loud, dangerous even. Some people would like to, just like with smoking and non-smoking sections, they would like to sit where they're not going to have to worry about some drunk man or woman ruining their experience out with their family and friends. Now, at first blush, I look at this and I think, man, it's not for no reason that we have not had this to this point. We've not had uh, sober seating made available. For one, if it's so wanted, then why do we need legislation for it, right? Why does this need to be a law? Why does the government need to tell stadiums and other public spaces to have sober seating available for people who want it? I, I'm not sold on that. I'm not sold on that. I I don't mind the idea. I think it's a great idea. Have places where people who don't want to sit around drunks uh, can seat their family. Great idea. Also, it shouldn't be required from the government, in my opinion. But it does get to that point again, that just because nobody's doing it, that doesn't mean it wouldn't work, that it wouldn't be welcome. Saying this is the way we've always done it is a really weak argument. Yeah, but maybe you've always done it wrong, right? Have you considered that? This is the way we've always done it. Yeah, yeah, 
And how's that working for you? On a less happy note, Harris Rigby over at Not The Bee published a piece March 10th. Oregon High School had kids write about their sexual fantasies, and apparently it was part of a statewide curriculum. Long and short of it, high schoolers were told at Churchill High School to write stories, short stories, a paragraph or two, in which they would show what it is that they dream about. They were encouraged to write these stories and turn them in. For those students who were absent, you will write a short story of a paragraph or two. This story is a sexual fantasy that will have no penetration of any kind or oral sex, no way of passing an STI in parentheses there, because again, safety, right? Safety. We got to be making sure nobody gets an STD. You will choose three items, romantic, music, candles, massage oil, feather, feather boa, flavored syrup, etc., to use in your story. Your story should show that you can show and receive loving physical affection without having sex. Uh, If I haven't mentioned it yet in this episode, and this is why we homeschool, and this is why we homeschool, this is perverse. This is corrupt. And how often is this going on? And parents have no idea that their children are being exposed to this in the public schools. How often is this happening or something like this happening where the teachers are grooming their students because that's what this is, corrupting minors, and parents have no idea. And all the while, especially if those parents are in full-time vocational ministry, they're saying, oh, we send our kids to public school and our school isn't like that. And they have no idea what they're talking about and they don't want to know, actually, more to the point, because it would be very upsetting to their status quo because their status quo is in large part contingent on being liked in the community, being well-received in the community, not stepping on toes by telling parents to pull their kids out of the public schools. Joseph McKinnon, back to theblaze.com. Another Norfolk Southern train derails, this time in Alabama, just hours before railways CEO told Congress he's deeply sorry over East Palestine. East Palestine, sorry. I keep wanting to say it the right way, but then this is America, so sometimes we don't say words the right way. Just saying. This piece here leads in perfectly to question four in this ARC, Alliance for Responsible Citizenship survey that I've been talking through. The question, question four, free enterprise and good governance. How do we govern our corporate, social, and political organizations so that we promote free exchange and abundance while protecting ourselves against the ever-present danger of cronyism and corruption? How do we govern our corporate, social, and political organizations so that we promote free exchange and abundance while protecting ourselves against the ever-present danger of cronyism and corruption? Let me tell you how we don't. First, let's do a little bit of a process of elimination. We don't by continuing on like we have been. Also, you can't just pick some random change in an evolutionary mindset and assume that it's going to be beneficial because that random change, hey, let's just try it, it could be actually worse. And it could be actually at root the way we've been doing it. 
even though you're doing something different, you're actually doing the exact same thing because your mindset hasn't changed. Your worldview hasn't changed. Your theology hasn't changed. Your anthropology hasn't changed. Your governing philosophy hasn't changed. You know, I'm reading a really great book right now, which I'll tell you more about as I get farther along. And certainly when I finish it, I'll give you a summary of what I thought of it and what I learned. But the book is Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World by Tom Holland. Read that book as far as I have. And I think I'm into chapter four at this point as of yesterday. Read that book and recognize that we don't have the prosperous, free Western world without Christianity. We don't. We don't. How do you govern corporate, social, and political organizations? Well, first and foremost, men have to have self-control and they have to have accountability. They have to have the capacity to confess when they're wrong, admit when they're wrong. They have to be open to reason. They have to be committed to the truth. They have to be committed to what is good. They have to know what is good, that they would be committed to it. We want to govern so that we promote free exchange and abundance. All right. Free exchange of what? Right? Free exchange of what? Abundance. Abundance of what? Hopefully good things, right? Hopefully the free exchange and abundance of good things. While protecting ourselves against the ever-present danger of cronyism and corruption, well, how do you know what corruption is if you don't know what is good? You have to know what is good in order to recognize evil if Augustine is right, that evil is just a diminution of the good, a privation of the good, which is to say you have to, have to, have to have men leading corporate, social, and political organizations who are themselves following Christ, who believe in Christ, who look to God's word to tell them what is true and what is good. You know, it's interesting that passage in Exodus spends so much time giving us the details of how the priests are to be consecrated and what they are to wear. It's very important. How do we know? Because God said, because God said that it was important. There's all this detail and you say, I, I, why do I need to know all this detail? Because God wanted you to. Okay? Because God wanted you to. These details have value and significance because they come from God and because God, by expressing these details, has communicated that they are important details to him in this context, in this manner, at this timing, for these individuals, for the members of this particular family, in this particular tribe, in this particular people, at this particular part of the world and historical period intersected. There's a dignity, there's a reverence, there's a propriety, which is insisted upon as the priest is wearing this ephod with the names of each of the tribes of Israel inscribed on precious and diverse gemstones, which is also curious. Each one of these gemstones is a different gemstone named in order of birth. We have God recognizing that there's a sin problem and also telling them what good to do. We need men. We need men governing corporate, social, and political organizations who believe what God says is good is good, who believe that what God says is evil is evil, and they act accordingly. You restore that 
and we'll be back on track again. You can't leave the same types with the same paradigms in place over a railway line, for instance. What has changed? We are deeply sorry. Are you? What has changed? Give us a full accounting of how this happened and whether it's actually getting fixed. It's not enough for you to be sorry. Are you doing what is good? If you're not, well, then you've harmed a lot of people and you should be accountable for that. You should be removed from your position of authority. That position of authority should be given to somebody who's been faithful. Because first and foremost, this isn't about you being sorry. This is about who has been harmed, who's been poisoned. Potentially, they will get cancer now as a result of these accidents. That's what this is about. Not about you being sorry. 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 We're going to have to hear more than that you're sorry. Things need to be made whole in order for there to be shalom restored. But that's not possible if we reject God's category of good and very good because we won't know what whole means. We won't know what being restored looks like without God's category of what is good and what is very good. We won't know what to repent of if we don't know what the standard is from God. We won't know the good things to do. We won't know the bad things to stop doing. So that's the answer. That's the answer to the question of how do we govern our corporate, social, and political organizations. It starts with Psalm 1, for instance. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Clean water, by the way, not contaminated water. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Life and death. Those are the choices, really. Those are the choices. And God knows. And if we refuse to ask him, well, then we've made our choice. And it is not life. And it is not abundance. And it is not prosperity. It is not peace. It is not security. It's death. Choose life, my friends. Choose life. I got to run, though. Like I said, it's a Sunday morning. I'm taking my family to church. But that is to say, I need to go get ready for church so I can take my family to church. I need to go make sure they're ready for church. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.